Daniel 7, 1 through 28, and uh, the title of this sermon is Hope from Heavenly Visions. Uh, They say, if you want to fill a a church building to either preach on sexuality or apocalyptic literature, and um, it's fitting that the church is full today, Uh, we are entering Daniel 7, apocalyptic literature. So if you're following along in your pew Bibles, it's on page 744. Daniel 7, 1 through 28. Well, today we move from, as I said, Daniel 6 to Daniel 7. And while that might just seem like a a shift in numbers, uh, we're actually going to experience a major shift in the book as a whole. Uh, First, we'll be shifting from the genre of narrative to the genre of what's called apocalyptic literature. Uh, David Helm notes that uh, this point of Daniel, storytelling gives way to movie watching. Uh, We'll be moving from words to vivid word pictures. So you're meant to visualize what Daniel writes here, and it's meant to stir something in you. Uh, The visions are, are meant to, like Daniel in this text, alarm you a little bit. But they're also strangely meant to encourage you and to give you hope. Daniel chapter 7 has been called the most comprehensive and detailed prophecy of future events to be found anywhere in the Old Testament. In other words, this chapter is a big deal. So, we're shifting from narrative to apocalyptic. One commentator says we instinctively know that A sentence that begins, the stars will fall from heaven, the sun will cease its shining, and the moon will drip blood, will not end, and the rest of the country will be partly cloudy with scattered showers. In other words, if you knew nothing about apocalyptic literature, you would most likely read Daniel 6 and then Daniel 7 and know that you were in a different type of terrain. You're in a different kind of writing. But... What is apocalyptic literature? Uh, One of the most helpful definitions I've seen is from a guy named Dale Ralph Davis, and I've got it up here on the screen for you. He, He says that apocalyptic literature is a sort of prophecy that seeks to enlighten and encourage a people despised and cast off by the world with a vision of the God who will come to impose his kingdom on the wreckage and rebellion of human history. And it communicates this message through the use of wild, scary, imaginative, bizarre, and head-scratching imagery. Um, I'm not sure how many of you watched The the Last Dance this last year. Uh, It it was a story of Michael Jordan's last season with the Chicago Bulls. And uh, for those of you like me who are Bulls and Michael Jordan fans, it, it was amazing. Well, as I was watching it, there's all this drama going on. Uh, Even watching the games in the documentary was so suspenseful. Uh, As I was watching it, I found myself getting nervous at points. Uh, Are the Bulls going to win this game? Is MJ going to pull it off and win the championship in his last season in Chicago? But then, uh, I kind of snapped back to reality. Now, I already knew that they won in the end. Regardless of all the junk that they went through and the trials they had to overcome, I had already seen these games. 
Actually, several times as a kid. In many ways, that's a bit of what's going on in apocalyptic literature, and specifically here in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, we're going to see some scary truths, truths that are meant to make us uncomfortable, and truths to warn us of hardships ahead. But we're meant to be encouraged that God is sovereign over it all, and he wins in the end. At the end of the day, apocalyptic literature is meant to kind of peel back the curtain on the unseen spiritual world, allowing us to see truths that will lead to the glorious end of this present world. With that in mind, I want to encourage us this morning to not get too bogged down in the details here. There are certainly details here that matter, but Specifically within apocalyptic literature, uh, one place people typically go wrong in interpretation is pressing the details too far. Uh, take, for example, if you were reading the, the parable of the prodigal son, that's something that's more familiar to us than, than apocalyptic literature. But if you were reading the prodigal son in the New Testament and got uber focused on the symbolism of the ring that the father puts on the wayward son's finger, or the shoes that he puts on his feet, you would have missed the point. Same here. If we get too caught up in trying to definitively connect this image to that modern kingdom, we will have missed the main point of the text. We will do a little bit of that where it's helpful, but our goal isn't to get stuck there. Uh, another large uh, structural note to point out too is that Daniel chapters 2 through 7, uh, you may remember, are written not in Hebrew, but in Aramaic. So you have chapter 1, it's written in Hebrew as an introduction, and then chapters 8 through 12 are written in Hebrew. But chapters 2 through 7 in the middle are not. So this text, chapter 7, it's a hinge point. It's the end of a major section. And the beginning of another one. So, chapters 2 through 7 are uh, an entity. But if you recall, chapter 2 was about a vision that was given to Nebuchadnezzar. And what was that vision about? Rising and falling kingdoms, right? Well, chapter 7, as a bookend, is the same. Chapter 2 and chapter 7 are bookends to the section, and they're meant to parallel one another in many ways. But there's a major difference as well. Now, all of the visions in chapters 2 through 6 were visions that were given to kings and then interpreted by Daniel. They were visions meant to teach the world something. Here, the vision isn't given to a king, but to Daniel himself. It's meant directly for the people of God. In other words, it's not a message for the outside world, but for his own people. Now, let's dive into the text. Our text today breaks down into three very distinct parts. Uh, verses 1 through 8, verses 9 through 14, and then verses 15 through 28. So those are our three main points. Point 1 the depravity of kingdoms in verses 1 through 8. Uh, straight away, we see in the text that 
We're no longer following the timeline that's been set for us up to this point. Uh, We met Belshazzar back in chapter 5. We saw his unrepentant pride. And then we saw him die. Then we saw a new king ruling in his place. But here, in Daniel 7, in this vision, we're back in time. Back to Belshazzar's rule. And in the midst of that rule, Daniel has this dream. And within this dream, we immediately see the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. Throughout scripture, uh, roaring seas typically represent chaos, conflict, places where evil emerge. Here, it's no different. It's a sharp contrast to the sea of glass that we'll see in Revelation 4, around the throne of heaven. Complete control, complete calm, complete righteousness. But we should also notice that this sea is being stirred up, how? By the four winds of heaven. So whatever's about to happen is God's doing. Keep that in mind. What's about to be shared may make it seem like God's out of control somehow, or powerless, but he's not. This is all his doing, and he has a plan and a purpose for everything that he does. It's ultimately going to bring him glory. So here's the main point. Nothing is outside of the sovereignty of God. Even these beasts in the dream. So, the waters are stirred. What happens next? Four beasts come out of the water. Again, parallel to chapter 2, each of these beasts represent kingdoms and kings. How do we know that? Well, the text explicitly tells us. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. Pretty straightforward. Now, this is where we can get lost on details and miss the forest for the trees if we're not careful. But each of these four beasts represents a kingdom, a king. Not much different than today, with the eagle representing America, or the bear representing Russia. Or the dragon representing China. Superpowers are often depicted as beasts of prey. Same idea here. So let's look at the first beast. Verse 4. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I looked, and as I looked, its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the ground and was made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. So, based on what we've read in Daniel already, and looking at other places in Scripture, this seems to represent Babylon, and specifically, Nebuchadnezzar. Both Jeremiah and Ezekiel compare Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon to a lion and an eagle, respectively. Further, we know Nebuchadnezzar's story, right? His wings were once plucked off. Remember chapter 4. Then we know that he was lifted up from the ground and given the mind of a man man again. 
One thing that I want us to see from the beginning here is that this beast and the rest of the beast aren't autonomous. There's clearly a higher power who can pull off his wings and control him where he wills. So, there's not a whole lot of disagreement on who this first beast represents. But, why would God give Daniel a vision of something in the past that he already knows about? Remember, this is during the time of Belshazzar, the king that came after Nebuchadnezzar. Well, it seems like he's giving Daniel something that he knows to give him confidence in the vision as a whole. He could trust the reliability of his interpretation. So God's kind of starting him off with an easy one, so to speak. So that's beast number one. Beast number two, verse five. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. This beast is traditionally understood to be the dual kingdom of Medo-Persia. Throughout Daniel and the rest of scripture, the the Medes and the Persians are linked together. And again, we could spend time this morning trying to figure out who are the three ribs in his mouth. But that would be to miss the point. The, The point here seems to be that this kingdom was a savage empire builder with a lust for blood. A bear with ribs in its mouth, devouring flesh, isn't tame. That's what we're meant to see. That's the point. It isn't domesticated and nice. It's not friendly. And here, I'd note the fusing of both human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Human responsibility under divine sovereignty. So you've got Medo-Persia. And her kings are responsible and accountable to God for their actions. They were savage and evil. But God used them to carry out judgment on Babylon, you remember. And specifically, on King Belshazzar. There's human responsibility for sin. But, just like with Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20... He says, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. Point is, God isn't out of control here. He's in complete control. Even when savage kings and kingdoms are sinning and disobeying. So that's beast two. Beast three, verse six. After this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. While there's a possibility for disagreement here, most scholars associate beast three with Greece, and specifically Alexander the Great. Uh, He swiftly builds his empire like a leopard. And almost as quickly as he died, his kingdom was fractured into four parts, thus the four heads. Moving on quickly, beast four. The most fascinating and scary and different of all the beasts, by the way, is beast four. Look at verses seven and eight. It says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, 
terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. Again, traditionally, this fourth beast has been identified with Rome. And Rome makes a lot of sense with this description. It may, in fact, refer to Rome, as does Revelation chapter 13. But I want to suggest, along with many other biblical scholars, that this beast, while it may point to Rome, points to something past Rome as well. Daniel goes out of the way to make sure that we know that this beast is something different. It's unlike any other. The other beasts were animal-like and had real animals that he could compare them to. But not here. It sounds like something you'd see in a science fiction movie, right? It's terrifying. It has iron teeth. Essentially, he's saying this fourth kingdom, it's unlike anything you've ever seen or experienced before. For this reason... Uh, Dale Ralph Davis again, he says this, he says, I would prefer then simply to dub the fourth beast the different kingdom and understand it as the last human kingdom, the one in which human evil and rebellion will reach its apex. And I think that's right. So what's the main idea behind this section and these four beasts? I think it's this. God wants Daniel and us this morning to see that on the whole, kings and kingdoms, worldly kingdoms, are out for control and conquest and conflict. He wants us to have a realistic view of humanity and of human kingdoms. They're not fluffy and cuddly. They don't appear in the dream as baby bunnies or kittens. They're beastly. And that's reality. That's real. That was the reality of what Daniel lived in. It would be the reality for God's people after Daniel as well. And as quickly as we dove into this beastly vision, it shifts gears again. It's almost as if the vision wants Daniel to be much, much less anxious about this little horn and to focus on something much greater. So point two, the sovereignty of God. Look with me in verses 9 through 14. Point two, the sovereignty of God. In many ways, we've been highlighting God's sovereignty here and there throughout the whole book of Daniel. And, and even minor comments thus far in chapter 7. But this is a whole new level here, this section. Again, we're going to be shifting from, from storytelling to movie watching. We're going to get to see God's sovereignty in 3D here. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. Daniel says, As I looked, thrones were placed, 
And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. If the first eight verses were meant to show us the reality of evil in this world, this section is meant to show us the reality of God. We're immediately whisked into a courtroom setting, and we come face to face with the Ancient of Days. Only Daniel in all of Scripture calls him this. But this is God the Father. Unlike the kings that we've seen rise and fall, he's ancient. And instead of old here, think eternal, wise, unmovable, unfading. He's not frail or senile, but grand, the ancient of days. So, what is it that Daniel teaches us about this ancient of days? First, He's seated on a throne. (laughs) There's a great quote, and I don't remember where I got it, but I've got it printed out and in my office on my desk. And it says this. It says, I am always a beggar at the throne of grace. And though it is a throne of grace, I never forget that it is a throne. What Daniel sees is a capital K king. Not a lowercase k king, but a king on a throne. Thrones in Isaiah chapter 6, or Ezekiel 1, or many, many, many other places in Scripture represent the rule, dominion, and authority of God alone. And he takes a seat. Compared to the frivolous and hectic activity of earthly kings and kingdoms, God sits on a throne. Now, does that image do anything in you emotionally? It sure does me. When I imagine this vision, which is what we're meant to do, I breathe a sigh of relief. The terrible images in verses 1 through 8 can cause anxiety. Man, God is on the throne, and he's seated. He's not surprised. He's calm. He's in control. And he's all authoritative. Isn't that burden lifting? It doesn't matter how bad we think things are politically in our current situation. Even if it gets worse, way worse. God is on the throne. I'm yet again reminded of Psalm 2 that we read earlier. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 6. I'm just going to read them again. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4, 
Look closely at this. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Do you see that? The kings of this world plotting against God. Yet, he's calmly seated in the heavens laughing, then speaking authoritatively. The nations rage, and yet he's unfazed, unshakable. He's not panicked in the least. That ancient of days is in complete control, even when all hell is breaking loose on earth. That's apocalyptic literature in a nutshell right there. Friends, do you realize that the center of power in this world isn't in Washington, D.C., or Beijing, or Moscow, or London. It's in heaven, on this throne. If we truly believe that, we can make it through anything. The Ancient of Days is seated on his throne. The text goes on to tell us that his clothing was white as snow, and his hair like pure wool. He's holy, pure, righteous. He's wise beyond comprehension. And his throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Remember, we learned this in Daniel chapter 3. Fire in scripture almost always represents one of two things. Do you remember that? Refinement? judgment. In this case, it's both, but leaning towards judgment in this courtroom setting. Furthering that idea, it says a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Psalm 97 verse 3, speaking of God, says fire goes out, goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. Similarly, Psalm 50 Verses 3 and 4. It says, Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. You see that connection between fire and judgment. Here in Daniel 7, in this courtroom, there's righteous wrath and judgment here. In this fire that's all around the throne. We'll see that play out soon enough. But do you see that this goes together, this judgment and fiery wrath, it goes together with his holiness and his purity. If judgment is going to be dispensed, I'll just ask the question, if judgment is going to be dispensed, who do you want doing it? Someone who's kind of shady? Someone who, who will bend the rules? Someone who has no integrity? No. You want someone dispensing judgment who's perfect in every way. That's our God, seated on the throne. Holy, pure, righteous, wise, ready to judge evil. 
And look at how majestic he is. Daniel tells us a thousand thousand serve him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. He's not a village god with village worshippers. He's the king of the universe. He's majestic. And thousands upon thousands are around his throne. Christian, do you see here that you're not alone? Like Daniel, I'm sure it often feels like you're standing alone in faithfulness to God. You may be the only Christian in your workplace or on your block, but you're not alone. One day, we will stand around the throne of God with a sea of those who are redeemed by Christ. We're not alone in worshiping the one true God. This is one of many reasons why Paul implored us, if you remember, in the book of Colossians, to seek the things that are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Paul tells us to set our minds on the things above. When we rightly do that, when we think about visions like Daniel 7, it reminds us of the truth of who God is. And it it encourages us, regardless of our earthly circumstances. Finally, our God is just. He judges by the book, so to speak. Text tells us that the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Can you picture this scene in your mind? If you can, it makes the next verse seem all the more amazing. There's this amazing, majestic portrait of the Ancient of Days. And then look at verses 11 and 12. He says, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. In light of the vision of the throne room that we've just seen, the horn doesn't seem so scary anymore, does it? That's the point. But this horn is still mouthing off. Can you imagine continuing to boast against this God on this throne? Yet, many do this kind of thing every day in the way that they live their lives. Pridefully living and speaking rebellion and sedition against the God of heaven and earth. Again, God will not be mocked. Look at how quick this beast, the worst of the beast, is dispensed with. Killed and thrown into the fire. Judged justly by the pure wrath of God. Do you see that? Daniel. Santa Cruz Baptist Church. God wins in the end. (laughs) It may be a long time coming. And you may feel like Satan's winning in the here and now. But the God of heaven is going to flick this beast off like a mosquito. 
He's not scary at all when you're on the side of the Ancient of Days. That's why this beast's judgment is, is actually sandwiched between the throne room we've just seen and the next two verses. This is glorious. Look at this. Verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Look at this. So first, this figure comes on the clouds of heaven. J.A. Emerton notes that the act of coming with the clouds suggests a theophany of Yahweh himself. He goes on to say, if Daniel 7.13 does not refer to a divine being, then it is the only exception out of about 70 passages in the Old Testament. So, this figure is divine. We're meant to see that. He's coming on the clouds. Second, Daniel tells us that there came one like a son of man. One like a son of man. Sinclair Ferguson says it best here. And I've got this quote on the screen for you. He says, The expression son of man appears to be the virtual equivalent of man. But when one like the son, the son of man appears, the title has particular rather than general significance. This is the true man, in contrast to the man become beast in the earlier elements of the vision. This is the one who is able to stand in the presence of God, whose throne is made of the fire of his judgment. This is the one who is worthy to receive dominion and glory in a kingdom that has all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. This true man is all that, human, or is all that humans as God's image were meant to be, but failed to be. So, this figure is divine and fully man. We should also know that this term, son of man, is Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself. The title appears 69 times in the Synoptic Gospels alone, 12 times in the book of John. And look at what Jesus does with this title in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Jesus says, for even the son of man, there's that title, even the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's linking this term, son of man, with the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and the concept of atonement. This son of man in Daniel 7 is Jesus. David Helm helpfully poses two questions for us that I want us to consider. He says, when else in human history do we find the Ancient of Days sitting on his throne and pronouncing judgment on the kingdoms of this world? So that's question one. And then question two. When does the Son of Man come before the Ancient of Days to receive an everlasting kingdom 
that includes rule over all peoples, nations, and languages. If you can keep those questions up there for us. In answer to the first question, when does that happen? Psalm 2, that we've now read twice. Uh, Multiple places in the New Testament refer to the Lord's, Lord's anointed in Psalm 2 as being Jesus. So, the Ancient of Days, seated on a throne, pronouncing judgment on kingdoms. Psalm 2, Jesus is present for that. But what about the second question? This all happens in connection with the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. This was the moment in human history when Jesus authoritatively rose to the heavens before the Ancient of Days and was given dominion over all. His ascension. And to be clear, Jesus told them what was going to happen. How did he do this? By referencing Daniel 7. Look with me at Mark chapter 14. Verses 61 and 64. So he's in his trial at this point. Mark 14, 61 through 64. It says, But he, meaning Jesus, remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see what? The Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power, and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garment and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. You see it? That the high priest knew exactly that he was referencing Daniel 7 here and saying, That's me. This was one of the most crucial moments in history. And Jesus is referencing Daniel 7, connecting himself to the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. You see what this vision is teaching us? This beast and his judgment, it's sandwiched between the Father and his judgment, and the Son authoritatively saving his people. God isn't promising Daniel or us a life with no trials, a life with no evil lurking against us. He is promising us that he wins in the end. And notice what Jesus says right before he ascends to heaven, thus fulfilling his promise. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Okay. So, if we believe this, that all authority has been given to Jesus, that he wins in the end, what should we do now if we believe that? And we do. Verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If we believe that Jesus wins, 
regardless of what beast is currently in front of us. We respond with evangelism and discipleship. We proclaim the good news. And we teach each other how to follow and obey Christ. And all of this sets us up for point three. An everlasting kingdom. Verses 15 through 28. And I'm going to try to fly at a high level very quickly here. After seeing this glorious vision of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, Daniel is still alarmed. He asks an angel to interpret what all this means. The angel explains the beast. And then, look at verse 18. He tells Daniel... But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Daniel's still worried about that crazy fourth beast, though. He asks for more clarification. And the angel gives some tough news in verses 23 through 25. He says, beast is going to speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. In other words, life is going to be rough for God's people under this fourth beast. Getting home from Babylon isn't going to be easy, brothers and sisters. This world and her rulers, regardless of where you are, are beastly. So we have to change our expectations of life in Babylon as exiles. But there's good news. Look at verses 26 and 27. Right after being told that this beast is going to wear out the servants of the Most High, it says, But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the peoples of, people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. That every single kingdom that stands against the Ancient of Days will be judged and destroyed. They'll fail. That's what he's saying. Yet, the kingdom of God will last forever because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Do you see how this vision peels back that reality for us? The kings and kingdoms of this world will try to wear you out if you follow Christ. Christ has overcome. He's overcome sin and Satan and death on behalf of those who have repented and believed. As one author put it, we will face trials, but we know of the Son of Man, who is at the same time the head and shepherd of the fellowship. The shepherd sees the lion coming, and the bear, and the leopard, and the fourth beast, and does not flee. In light of that truth, 
Let's pray and thank God. Pray with me.